0: If you're going to do something, go all out.
1: If you want to grow, you have to delegate.
0: And as you grow, you become a bottleneck and you restrict the flow of information at your firm.
1: You have to enjoy what you're doing. If you don't enjoy it, like, what's the point? And let's ask
0: ourselves, would we enthusiastically rehire every single person on this list? Let's imitate rather than unnecessarily innovate. That uncomfortable space is where you grow as a person, you develop as a person, and that's where the best stuff happens.
1: In law school, attorneys are taught to challenge everything, tear things apart, break them down. But the qualities that make lawyers great are some of the worst for running a business. At every stage, running a business and practicing law can be overwhelming. Oh, and what happens when you try to add life and family, it can all feel nearly impossible, but you aren't in this alone. Welcome to Tip the Scales, where we get personal about what it really takes to run a law firm from marketing to manifestation. I'm Maria Monroy, co-founder and president of LawRank, a leading SEO agency for ambitious law firms. Each week, we hear from the industry leaders on what it really takes to run a law firm, because success lies in the balance of life and law. We're here to help you tip the scales. Today, we get into why law firms break when they grow and what to do about it, getting past the fear and building a practice that you dream about, how resistance to change holds us back, and why you need to get your house in order today so you can sell your firm in the future. Here to talk with me about all these things is Chad Dudley. He has a resume that is longer than my arm, so I'll let him tell it.
0: Hi, I'm Chad Dudley, uh, the managing partner of Dudley DeBosier Injury Lawyers.
1: Open since 2009, his firm has 60 attorneys, 225 employees, and has represented thousands of people in Louisiana.
0: In addition to that, uh, I'm the CEO of CJ Advertising. We're an advertising agency that only represents personal injury firms, and we do all of their marketing and advertising through whether it's TV, online, billboards, print, database marketing. And we represent about 45 brands throughout the country. Uh, In addition to that, back in 2009, I I started Vista Consulting with Tim Mackey for – Many, many years, probably have consulted with over 200 law firms, different planner firms, all different sizes. And uh, in 2018, I got out of Vista Consulting when we purchased CJ Advertising, but still do a little bit of consulting here and there on a project basis. That's my background. I love talking about personal injury firms. I love talking about how we can help our clients, how we can build better firms, and how we can improve what we do.
1: That's amazing. I did not know until the production research. I didn't know you had anything to do with Vista.
0: Back in 2008 or so, I was the COO of a law firm, and we were using needles at the time. My background, I had a little bit of a background in database design management, and I built a dashboard on top of needles, and some other firms saw it. They liked it, asked for some help to implement it. My first client happened and, and then reached out to Tim Mackey, who is a, a friend of mine. He was a business consultant and asked him if he wanted to um, you know, work together to deliver consulting to personal injury law firms. Back then in the day, pretty much nobody was doing consulting in the personal injury space. It was crazy. Dashboards weren't so you
1: started this trend.
0: I don't know. I don't know about you're s- to blame. <laughs> I don't know about started it or whatever, but like back then there was nobody in the marketplace. It was a totally new concept. Dashboards wasn't even a thing. People were kind of like, Well, what are we looking for? There's there's so many different metrics that weren't even on the radar of the industry. And we just started working with firms and, and, and creating a bunch of things and it really caught fire. We had a blast. It grew like crazy. And uh, Tim Mackey is one of my closest friends. We still talk all the time today. I had just gotten out because we had purchased CJ and there was just too much going on. And, uh, but yeah, so that was, gosh, 2008, 2009. And, um, you know, is going strong as ever, killing it. And it's just cool to see it. Now, There's people everywhere in that space. There is.
1: Now it's a trend. It's definitely a trend right now. But that is awesome. Congrats. So tell me, why are you the way that you are? Is there a special sauce for ambition?
0: I've always been competitive. I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii. I started playing tennis at the age of seven and started quickly playing competitive tennis shortly thereafter. Started off playing city tournaments, then up to state tournaments, then regional tournaments, then national, then international. And at the age of 14, I had a scholarship to go to a tennis academy in Florida. It was called Bolitaries back then. Today, it's called IMG Academy. And I did nothing but play competitive tennis, wanted to play pro, played some lower level pro tournaments, wasn't good enough, decided to go to college had a scholarship to play tennis for LSU, had a great experience, very strong team, top 10, uh, top 20 in the country nationally, and then got out and I carried a lot of those competitive instincts and discipline and all the stuff that it takes to play high-level college sports and, and applied it to, I just was used to operating in that mindset. So when I came to practicing law, I just always looked at it like that, like if you're going to do something do it to the best of your ability. If you're going to do something, go all out. And that's how I approach everything that I do.
1: I find it fascinating because I've never played any sports or anything like that. But it seems like there is a trend where people that played sports, there's a lot that can be learned from it. Even just like failing, Mm -hmm. right? Like you lose and then it's like, oh, time to get back up. What do you think you learned that you can apply?
0: There's a discipline to you know you get up at a certain hour and you work out before many people started their day and then you go and you go throughout your day and then you just you're putting in the extra repetitions the extra effort you take ownership of your sort of development and going okay if i want to be good at this i'm not going to wait for it to happen to me i'm going to go find a coach i'm going to go find someone that knows what they're doing and have them coach me teach me and accelerate my, my learning process and that's a concept that you know we we founded vista on and that consulting is the mindset of going okay i just work a certain number of hours i work with a certain level of intensity all those things that were part of being a, a college athlete you just apply and you learn the stuff you learn about teamwork playing on a team and it's not about you it's about the team and and fulfilling your obligations to the team and not letting them down and picking each other up when one another falls down and and so there's a ton of different life lessons that you learn from playing sports and and like there's obviously other channels to go get those lessons but that's a great healthy space to learn a lot of great stuff about life and about business
1: all i can think of is my children i'm like okay i am enrolling them in everything tomorrow <laughs> and it's it's funny Because you wonder like what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? And I have two sons that are two years apart and one is super into soccer and all he wants to do is be a goalie and he's eight and he's like obsessed, but he also has that more of that personality of like that grit that I'm not going to give up that teamwork. It's just interesting because as I'm talking to you now, I'm like, well, but maybe it's just nature,
0: yes and no. And I think that when, whether it's when we're bringing new people onto our team, you ask yourselves, okay, are they just born a certain way? Or is there something that you can develop in them? And with like kids, I think that absolutely they have natural inclinations and I think you can facilitate them. Like I was looking for something to pour that competitive energy into and had my parents maybe not provided a channel for that to happen, or who knows where, where that goes, it goes somewhere else or maybe it goes to a less healthy space. But I think you can encourage it. One thing I, you know, I learned in watching people grow up and play sports and kids and all this kind of stuff is that, and I think this is also true with people you bring on board with your team is like with kids, you can force them as, as a parent, you can almost force them to be good at almost anything up until the age of about 12. Like you can make them go to practice. You can make them get up early. You can make them, you know, eat right, and do all these things. But at some point the rubber meets the road. And if they don't want to do it on their own, if they don't have this internal thing in them that goes, I want to do this. I love this. I want to be great at this. Then it's going to fail at some point. It trails off and they go find their own. Hey, look, I don't, I don't want to do this in And you see that so often. And I think that with our team members, you know, at a firm, we're looking for people that have that internal drive. We're like, They're self-driven. They're self-motivated to be great at what they do and and to do good things. And it's not because do they want to get paid? Absolutely. Do they want to get treated right at the office? Absolutely. Do they want to feel respected? Absolutely. But those things are less of the driving force versus their internal motivation just to be great at what they do. And I think that's a common thing. You see that in athletes because they're just driven. But we look for that in anyone that we bring on board with our team. Do they just want to... Do they push themselves to be the best?
1: Yeah. We're similar. We only keep A players. Like if you want to work at our rank, you have to be an A player.
0: When we were starting the firm in 2009, in the early years, we asked ourselves, look, let's get every single person that works at our office and let's ask ourselves, would we enthusiastically rehire every single person on this list? Like is our receptionist?
1: That's a great question. Yeah, and not like,
0: if you have to think about it, that's not enthusiastic. Cameron Harold who wrote the book Double Double challenged us with that proposition and the answer was there's a there's a bunch of people that we wouldn't and we repeated that exercise every single quarter until we got the team that we needed and and it was such a huge deal because so many times we like we just put off that conversation but to this day we we do a different version of it but I think we all got to ask ourselves And that doesn't mean like if you say no, you go fire them tomorrow, but you at least initiate the conversation like this, this isn't working out. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's a huge part of building your culture because without your, your team, without a bunch of a players, you can't pull this cool stuff off. You can't have great client service. You can't deliver great product. You can't deliver great legal services. And that's not the firm we want to be. So we like constantly got to ask ourselves, do we have the right team?
1: So tell me, I know you talk a lot about letting go to grow. So if we talk a little bit about delegation, what was the first moment that you realized if I want to grow, I have to be able to delegate?
0: Well, you know, again, so having worked with so many law firms over the years, and some have been one attorney solo practice firms, other firms you got, you know, three, four hundred people and tons of attorneys in multiple states and then everything in between, you see these patterns and the first thing I've noticed is that you can probably apply this to most businesses, but I'm going to talk about law firms because I've seen it specifically there. Things break every time you double. Like, so when you have 10 employees, the systems and processes and things that how you run the firm, how you keep track of what everyone's doing, a lot of that stuff breaks when you go to 20 people. And then it breaks again when you go to 40 people. And then it breaks again when you go to 80. And then it breaks again at 160 and then 320. And, and so... The other thing that I've learned is the solo owner can almost keep track of everything up until about that 40 person mark. Like they can kind of know everything that's going on in the firm. They can kind of keep their hand in everything. I'm not saying well, but they can kind of like still barely hold on. And if you have multiple partners, that number might be a little bit higher, but at some point around that 40 mark, you got to start letting go. And Look, it's natural. In a startup, you wear a bunch of hats. You're the, you know, you're the lead attorney. You're the operations guy. You're the marketing guy. Deal with the finance guy and how to handle the money. You make all these decisions. Everything comes through you. You might even make coffee, fix a printer, you know, plug in the lap, whatever. You have to do everything. And as you grow, you got to like let go of the stuff because you become a bottleneck and you restrict the flow of Information at your firm. And so you got to start letting go. When I'm working with owners and leadership, I go, okay, there's four things it takes to run a firm. You got to get cases in the door. You got to manage your money right. Then you got to provide great legal services, call that legal ops. And then you got to support the delivery of those legal services. I call that operations. Now, most owners will look at those four things and there's one that they go, I love doing that. I want to handle cases. I want to do the marketing. They'll pick one and they like, They feel energized by it. They're excited by it. And then they'll look at other ones go, if I have to do that again, I want to jump off, you know, a high building. And I say, well, outsource, find someone who's really good at the things that you dread doing. That's the first stage of starting to let go and walk them through that and go, okay, don't this firm, any firm that I've seen, that's been great. It is not built on the weaknesses of the owners. It's not built on the weaknesses of the leadership. It's not built on the things that they hate doing and don't do well. It's built on the things that they love doing, that they dive into and just get fired up about doing. And so for my partners and I, they love trying cases. So we try to create an environment where they could focus on just trying cases. I like running law firms. They, they created an environment for me where I can spend my time running a law firm. I see so many firms that are stuck in these various stages of growth because you have an owner that's going like, I hate operations, but they keep themselves in it and won't let go of it. And it's not fun for them. It's not fun for their team. It's not great for their firm, their clients suffer, but they're just afraid to let go.
1: And you hit the nail on the head though. You just said it. They're afraid. So what can they do to get past that fear? And where do you think that fear stems from? Is it a control thing? some limiting beliefs. What, 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 do you think it is?
0: There's absolutely some li- limiting beliefs. I mean, I think, you know, I'll, I'll speak at conferences and I'll talk and you know, I'll have people come up to me and go, Hey, th- look, that's great that you guys have 200 plus employees and 60 attorneys, but I don't want that firm. I don't want to build my firm. And I'm like, maybe that, that, that might be an answer, but is it just because you're like, you want to, is that your restriction because you have an impression of what that firm looks like? Or is it because you know what that firm looks like and you just don't want that. And I've seen both, but like you really got to ask yourself, do I have some misperceptions about what a big firm looks like? Right. And you have to be comfortable in saying, okay, I used to do these 10 things. I used to be the person, like you have to come to me for everything. And I'm, I'm so important to this firm and get over that and be like, "Eh, no, focus on this one thing that you do well and trust that you work with a bunch of smart people who, care about your clients and care about the firm and they're going to do awesome and you're going to build something better just get over your ego sometimes it's a little bit of just not knowing what if i let go and i can't get it back what if i you know what if they run it into the ground and there's responsible ways to go about this exercise i'm in hawaii right now with my my boys right and there's all these different like cliffs and bridges you can jump off of and go into the water right and when you pull up to one and there's nobody there, you're like, this looks like a good place to jump, but you don't know, are there rocks in there? Is it shallow over there? Am I going to kill myself over here? And you go through all these mental exercises. And sometimes you might just walk away and go, Hey, look, I don't know enough about this. I'm just going to forget it. Versus you walk up to a spot and there's a bunch of people jumping in and they're like, Hey, jump in that spot right there. That's where, you know, the water meets it's 30 feet deep. You'll be fine. You see people jump and you're like, I got this. I got, I'm, I'm no longer afraid. I'll just go do it because I see other people doing it. They're coaching me how to do it. And that's kind of what you run into with letting go of your law firm. People are just afraid. They're just wondering, they think there's rocks in the water. They don't know how deep it is. They don't know if they jump, they're going to break a leg. And so they just walk away and don't do it and miss out on a pretty cool experience.
1: Any water analogy automatically gives me anxiety, just, just so you know sat through that anxiety right there. I'm totally, I'm like super afraid of water, but I mean, I'll go in, but I'm still afraid. I think if you want to grow, you have to delegate. It's just like common sense.
0: A hundred percent. That can go a couple different ways. When I'll work with firms, you got delegation at the macro level and you got it at the micro level. At the At the micro level, it's like, Hey, can you do this? Hey, can you do that? Hey, make sure, you know, get back to me on that, et cetera, et cetera. Get it. That's more mechanical. Then there's delegation at the macro level. Going okay for us to be the firm that we want to be, we have to get these four projects right in the next quarter and being able to turn that over. Now to do that, what we'll typically do is you know look, make sure we all understand why are we doing this. What do we think that is going to happen if we get this right? Are we all in agreement that this is you know the way to do it? Second, we'll be like, what is a win? Are we clear on what a win is for the next three months? Like, where are we trying to get to? Is it super objective? Will we be able to say at the end of this month? Yes or no, that we got to these things. We'll get clarity on who owns it. There's only one person that owns it, even though there might be multiple people that work on it. We got one person that approves it, the person that's going to sign off and say this is done in a way that it needs to be done. And then the last thing is making sure that we follow up strong, meaning so many firms I work with go, this next quarter, we're going to do this thing. And then maybe it's a system or a process. They get it up and running. It runs for maybe a few months and then it dies off because they don't find a way to integrate it into their ongoing life of the firm. And what I mean by that is call it partner visibility. How is the partner going to know that this system or process or thing is still living and breathing? Are they going to get an update each week, each month, each quarter? What is the time span or frequency with which they want to know it's still alive? Who's going to make sure. And so there's some techniques there that are the difference between executing at a sort of mediocre level versus executing in a way that you don't have to come back three months from now and breathe life into something that you finished the prior quarter. And, and so those are important things. The other thing that I think in terms of delegation is now I recommend that firms have what I would call a roles and responsibility document. It's actually a spreadsheet. It lists, okay, for every core system process metric at the firm who owns it, why is it important? What is the expectation? Like, is there a standard that we're trying to implement for this thing? And then you pick the way that they're gonna report on is a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly thing. And there's clarity on who owns what. And there's no, like it could be something as simple as who makes the real estate decisions at the office. We have three partners. Well, we designate James. James is the one, he knows that he owns it. Here's the expectation of what that looks like. There's a person on the executive team that reports to him that really handles it. But there's a flow for all these things so that there's clarity on ownership and expectations. And at the macro level, I think that's important for delegation.
1: What was the hardest thing for you to let go of, to have delegated?
0: Originally, it was handling cases because I actually enjoyed handling cases. And I got to a crossroads in my career where I was like, okay, do I want to continue handling cases and representing clients or do I focus on the the management side? And it felt weird to let go of, of the handling of files. Probably more recently, as we got to a certain size, Letting go of, I guess, running the executive team where we have a CEO, awesome, super great guy, Merton Rice, and we have an incredible executive team. They're all superstars. And letting go on a sort of weekly basis, like going, you know, we meet once a quarter and go, hey, here's the objectives for the quarter. Here's what we're trying to do. I'm always available to talk, hash through things, find solutions. But for the most part, giving them the freedom to go take some swings, try some things and succeed, run into obstacles, figure it out. But with coaching and, you know, you want to get in and just, but then you can't at a certain size of a firm, you can't have your hands in everything. And so that's been probably the most recent challenge, but it's an ongoing thing. You're constantly trying to grow with your business if your business is growing, right? If we ever get to a size where we're 500 people or a thousand people, I'll have to evolve as well right and i'll have to challenge myself to keep learning on how to to operate at an effective level at that size of a firm and so it's ongoing two years from now who knows what it'll be i'm sure it'll be something
1: does it get easier over time uh,
0: yeah i think it's got easier because you you trust the process you've jumped off the bridge before and the thing that we always ask ourselves is going whatever it is that we're trying to do we're trying to grow the firm we're trying to double the size of the firm we're trying to get better results for our clients Whatever it is that we're doing, we ask ourselves, has this ever been done in the history of the world before? And if so, can we go to that person, ask them how they did it, and at least start there? Like, Let's imitate rather than unnecessarily innovate. I know that it's not a plug and play, but we'll go learn from somebody that's done something we're trying to do, whether it's another firm, whether it's a consultant, whether it's a coach, whether it's a conference. Let's start there. And then adapt our thing to it, and that's accelerated our learning curve. We've always, even as a consultant, I've always, we've always had third parties come in and help us get to where we want to go. And so, to answer your question, does it get easier? It gets easier in the sense when you just trust the process. Like a good consultant will come in and say, "Hey, tell you some things that you should do." That is. Counterintuitive. It, it might feel a little uncomfortable because if it were intuitive or comfortable, you would have done it on your own already. And so, to answer your question, does it get easier? No, it's always a little challenging, but you trust the process. You're like, all right, I picked the right person that knows what they're doing. For the love of God, be careful in the selection because if you pick the wrong person and you trust them, that sends you down a whole bad path. But if you pick the right person that knows what they're doing and knows their craft and they tell you to do something, it should be a little bit uncomfortable. And you trust that uncomfortableness, knowing that they're telling you to do something that is going to get you there. And, um, and so we trust that process and you get used to trusting that process.
1: You mentioned doing things that are uncomfortable. I'm a big fan of doing things that are uncomfortable or that you're afraid of. And we can go back to sports because I mean, it's like, I go to the gym every morning and it's sometimes uncomfortable, right? You're lifting weights. It's difficult. It hurts. Do you also think that tennis helped you there?
0: when you're practicing, you think about, I'm going to eventually have a match where I could play my best and I may or may not win. And that's scary. You walk on the court, it's a big match. It's an important match. And you're nervous, usually nervous up until the first ball is hit. And then all of a sudden the nerves would always go. There's a fearful component of going into that situation. There's a fearful component in doing a lot of things. When I was (laughs) my second year of law school, for whatever crazy reason, I said, you know what, let me go do an exchange program. I went and I did a semester of law school in France. I took all my law school courses in French. I thought I spoke French. I got there and realized I spoke, (laughs) I spoke conversational French. I did not speak law school French and I didn't understand anything for two months and it was scary and it was fearful. but you know, I just cranked through it. I learned the language and I passed my courses and that was scary, but I looked back and that was a crazy, awesome experience And it was uncomfortable. And you go through these things and you you get confidence. I think about my first case as a first year attorney, they put me on this toxic tort case up in North Louisiana, and we had 4,000 plaintiffs. And I was in charge of helping complete the proof of claim forms and meeting with all these individuals. And it was scary. It was uncomfortable, but you power through it and you learn all these crazy, awesome skills that help you for the next gig. And so, yeah, I think. You know, that uncomfortable space is where you grow as a person. That's where the best stuff happens. So yes, get out of your comfort zone.
1: <laughs> Lean into your fear, right? It's it's telling you something and it's okay to be uncomfortable. As a business owner, I learned this the hard way. You said that when you're you want to accomplish something, you see if it's been done before and then you want to learn from whoever's done that. And I've learned that the hard way where one day I realized, wow, was I arrogant. Like there's so much information. Like I didn't have to try to figure this thing out. And there are also so many people that are willing to help. And there's such a community in the legal space. And I think a lot of people are not taking advantage of that.
0: You are so crazily right. I mean, I can tell you, I can tell you like, uh, I try to have the spirit of a, Continual learner, I'm always trying to learn, and I can tell you I've, I've worked with firms that are like kick ass and incredible, and I'm you're just you're drinking from a fire hose. Like you're there's so many good things. I'm learning as I'm teaching. There's other firms that are not as well run at that moment. I still learn from those guys because I believe I have a spirit of I'm going to learn. I can learn from everybody in every situation. There's times when I'm you know, I've spoken at conferences or I've worked with firms, and I. I'm trying to tell them, hey, look, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I've seen work at other firms. Here's what works here, in my opinion. And they're so caught up in, we're doing that, we're doing that, we're we're already doing it. I'm like, no, you're you're not quite doing it. (laughs) They're so adverse to saying, you know what? Yes, I think I can do it differently, that they miss the opportunity. And I think it's so easy for any of us to go through that going, hey, I'm doing it. I got this. I know what you're telling me, but you don't understand our situation, that they miss the
1: opportunity to learn. It's ridiculous. Every single time I talk to a law firm and I bring them an intake, they're like, oh, no, we're great at intake. And I'm like, okay. So I, I told this client once, all right, well, I'm going to secret shop you. And he was so cool. He's go for it. Okay. 30 minutes later, I get an email. Abort mission was the title. <laughs> and it said... Do not secret shop us. There is room for improvement. I stand corrected. Thank you very much. I'll let you know when you can secret shop. And I'm like, of course, there's, it's a, it's not a set and forget. Intake is so important. It literally drives me insane. And it probably drives you insane.
0: hundred percent. Intake is the signature area where this happens so much, because, you know, when you go, if if someone were to say, hey, you know, when I go work with firms or try and get them really kicking, there's two spots we'll, we'll look at intake and then we'll look at where, where are the best cases in the building? Like where they look That's a whole nother conversation, but the, on the intake side, we'll go, they all say, everyone says, we're great. We got it covered. It's not that bad. And you start breaking it down from the mechanics of it. A few years ago, two good friends of mine, separate firms, they both said, Hey, look, intake's great. And I said, look, I will look at it for free. Just give me, you know, a percentage of whatever I find. They're like, ah, we're joking, but they didn't. But on one firm, they had a gap in, just basically, there's a gap in the data of how they're tracking a certain category of cases. We were able to get them a, an additional 80 cases per month. Jesus! Uh, so you talk 80 cases times say you have a 75 percent close with your rate.
1: Did they send you a really nice gift? I would have sent you a really <laughs> nice gift.
0: <laughs> they gave me a yes. They were they're very very good friend. But you think about that. So the 80 cases, say 75 percent of them close with a fee. That's 60 cases. Even at low, you know, $10,000 average closed fee, you're talking about a chunk of money over a one year span. Other firm, different firm, same, similar result. They didn't have as many cases coming through. So it was a little bit, but still, really well run firms, really great firms. Just, I mean, you get, you, you see a gap in the data or a few things, a few corrections here and there. And it's a big, big deal. Now, that's intake. There's so many different parts of a firm that these little tweaks can. Just result in better client service, better results for your clients, people happier, and um, yeah, they're all over the place.
1: Why do you think people or some people are not open to, I guess, change? And people get very defensive. So I, I, I... <laughs>
0: okay. the, 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 This is going to possibly be a controversial answer, but this is the truth. They're just making too much money. In most industries, the, the general rule is that if, if an industry has more than 15% net profit, it attracts competition, then we'll beat it down until it gets to 15% net profit or lower. And then it kind of settles, right? And in our profession, people are able to hit much higher net profit ranges because we're basically in a protected environment. You have to be an attorney to own a law firm. It keeps a lot of potential competitors out. You can have some nice, healthy net profit numbers and not fix a lot of this stuff. And you can get by, you can kind of you know, do pretty good and not fix this stuff and not grow. Now, there's going to be a reckoning because that's all about to change once you get into the public ownership of law firms and you have these new competitors coming in that if you are inefficient, if you're doing these things haphazardly, if you're not paying attention, it's going to be much, much tougher. And so now's the time to get these things right. Now's the time to get your house in order uh, for a variety of reasons. If you want to compete, You got to get your house in order. Are you considering selling your firm in this maybe potentially new marketplace that's going to appear in the next five to 10 years? Guess what? They're going to want to buy firms that are doing this stuff correctly. They don't want to buy a firm that is just poorly run. And so whatever your strategy is, now's the time to get this stuff, get your house in order.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if, and you've bought a business before, I've never bought a business, but if I were to buy a business, I would rather buy a business that didn't have great marketing but had great results and great processes that I can just go and build an awesome marketing or sales department than the other way around. Any day.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, you look at uh, you know Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger's his right hand man wrote some really crazy, awesome books. Um, but one of the things they go, well, do you think that it makes more sense to buy a a very low performing business and then turn it around and make this big profit. And they're like, absolutely not. We want to buy the best performing business with great people, great systems, great processes, and we're going to make it better, but we have a chance of making it better with those things present. There's, we have no chance if we buy a low performing business at a discount price, no way we've done that in the past. We'll we'll never do it again. And I agree. I, I said the firms that are the best run will be the most attractive if there are, if you do want to sell your firm.
1: Absolutely. What are some tools that you think are awesome for setting up processes for law firms? What, what would you recommend a firm have in place?
0: There's some core things like, okay, intake is just a whole animal in and of its own. It's got to be, you know, from, there's so much on in that category. Uh, then you got your executive team. How good is your firm at creating a culture, hiring great people, retaining great people, training great people, how good is that team at working together and setting objectives and executing on them in a way that is effective. There's a general rule that I would say 8% of your team should know everything about your firm. And what I mean by that is, if you have 100 people, there should be eight people, I'll include the partners in it, that have access to every number have access to, you know, who's getting hired, fired, what everyone makes, they know your budgets, they know, they know nothing is off limits. And the reason I say that is because we expect our team to make decisions as good as us with less information than us. And that's not cool, right? That's not, you know, Hey, go make, go make great decisions, but I'm going to give you half the information I have at my disposal. Now, when you're a smaller firm back to when you're a 10 person firm, and, it, and you're the owner, you're 10% of the culture, you're 10% of the knowledge, you're 10% of the... And you can get away with that. When you go to 20 now you're 5% of the team, right? You get diluted and you need these key people. And the number's about 8% is what I've seen with working with firms. And they need to be culture ambassadors. They need to know all the information. They need to be you know, the, the same mindset. So that's, that's a core piece with the executive team. And then you got got the, the case management side. And, you know, when I'm working with a firm, there's a whole, that's a whole nother podcast about, okay, what do you do on the case management side to make sure you have your core systems and processes together? I'm a big proponent of, you know, started the concept of going, okay, take an inventory of your attorneys. Can we all sit in a room and go, let's assess the skill sets of our attorneys. We have this attorney over here that has been successfully first chair at a bunch of multimillion dollar jury trials. We've got this attorney here that just got out of law school and it's his first job and his first time working at personal injury. Can we just talk about that? These are two different skill sets and they should get different type of cases. And as simple as that concept sounds, there's so many firms that don't want to have that conversation. They just kind of want to wink and nod and hope everyone understands there's that piece of it. There's how you rank your cases, possibly one of the most important things that a firm does. It sounds simplistic. It is the, you said intake. Everyone says, I got this. I got this. We have no problems. You don't. But, <laughs>
1: got it. Sorry.
0: The other hidden killer at firms is how they rank cases. Every firm goes, I know how to rank cases. Our case ranking system is airtight. They all suck. There's, there's a, you can make so many mistakes. There's a way to do it right. And it's so critically important. And then you can go on and on, but those are some of the key elements that we start off with when, you know, again, working with a firm and, Again, that roles and responsibility document, as you create a system, as you create a process, there should be an owner that's in writing, expectation set, this process that we created, you know, intake, who owns intake, who owns your chase calls, who owns making sure that the first 90 days are are handled right with the client. And all these things can kind of break it down. But that's the start. And then you get to more elaborate and complex systems and processes.
1: Yeah. To me, some of this stuff is crazy because I've spoken to firms that don't have a case management software. I've spoken to firms that different lawyers are using different things. And I'm just like, wait, you're not all on the same system. And they're like, no. I've spoken to firms that no one owns intake. No one. And then we have one client that's like, oh, my managing partner owns intake. And I was like, you're amazing. That's great. Yes. Someone owns it. And oh, and that's his only job. Only job, and this is a lawyer, one of the partners, is to own intake, and I'm just like, okay, like this is the perfect client.
0: Yeah, it's great. It's great. That's what we're talking about. And you go through each of these things and just making sure that someone owns it and that there's clarity on that. None of this stuff happens overnight. Like this stuff takes time, and it it's hard. It's hard, and it's a bunch of it's being consistently disciplined over a period of time and you just chip away, chip away, chip away. Now, it's funny because we talk about, gosh, 13 years ago we started the firm and it took us, there's things that it took us two years to get right that we can coach a firm on how to do it in three months now because we're like, we know all the traps. Here's how you do it. And that's back to, if you're trying to do something, go talk to somebody that knows what they're doing and you can save so much time, effort, and energy in applying it to your firm And that's good. It makes us happy. We have firms that we talk to, share information with that knock out stuff that, again, took us years and years and they knock it out in one year or six months. And that's awesome.
1: That is awesome. Now you mentioned culture. How do you make sure that as a law firm owner, you have a major impact on your firm's culture?
0: It gets tricky as you get bigger, because I talked about you you're diluted, right? As you have multiple offices and it, as you have, and back to that 8% number, do you have 8% of your team that is all in on culture, all in on the firm at a minimum, and at least that they're spreading the word they're impacting people and they're, they're sharing what the firm is about. And, and so to answer your question, yes, we're trying to impact that group and that group's trying to impact the different corners and, and places of the firm That's one part of it. The other part of it is, you know, when a firm, my good friend who bought CJ from Arnie Malham wrote a book on culture and he would say culture is like, you know, if you ever walk into somebody's house, everyone's house has a smell. Like there's a smell (laughs) that is right. And, And, and for some houses it's by design, like they have candles and they have scented stuff and they got potpourri and all this kind of stuff it's by design. And then other houses, it's by neglect. Like they just left some, you know, chili out on the stove for too long. And the whole house smells like chili. And he said, look, your culture at your firm is the same way. You got firms that have it, you have a culture.
1: But how do you establish that culture and how do you maintain it?
0: There's a couple of things. One, I think the partners sit down and go, what do we want this firm to be about? Now it's got to be in line with how the partners are like, don't, try to be something that you're not be honest, be, and you ask yourselves, what is the firm that we're trying to build? And then we talk to our key people who are the people at our office that we believe in. They get it. They live and breathe what we're about. And we talk to them and we ask, we think of ourselves, what qualities do they have that make us say that? And for us, we narrowed it down to there's, you know, six core things where we go, okay, we're going to take care of our team. We're taking care of our team is an absolute core component of what we are. We're going to take care of our clients. We're going to make sure that we do everything we can to get them the best results they deserve. Number three, we're going to do great work. We're going to take pride. We don't want to be you know, half-assed lawyers. We want to take pride in our craft, continually learn, continually improve what we do for our clients. And so we're going to be great at what we do. We want to give back to the places in the community, to our firm, to the people around us, to our clients. We want to give back to other law firms and share and just have a spirit of Open, share, uh, give back. We want to have fun. Like it's not worth it if the if the journey is not fun, it's not worth it to us. And so we ask ourselves: Are we enjoying the ride? Are we going to have a good time? And then the last thing is: Do what's right, not what's easy. There's so many times that it would be easier to just hey, let's wrap this case up. You know, it's a pretty good. It's okay. But no, let's push it and do full justice. Get the best result we can. If that means trying the case, we're going to try the case. If that means getting an excess judgment and then going down that path and collecting on that. That's what we'll do. And so those things are what we came up with from talking amongst ourselves as partners, talking to the key people that we believe exemplify what we're about. Once you write those things down, then you've got to ask yourselves, what are examples of this in real time? What does it mean to take care of your team? Well, it means assume the best going into an interaction with a person, being responsive to your team members. Like we articulate what each one of those things mean And then you have to celebrate and tell stories about it in the sense of at our weekly huddles, we have a weekly huddle. When we say and brag on somebody in the huddle, do we tie it to one of those core values? And are we actively telling stories about people who have done stuff that exemplify those core values, right? We had an attorney, awesome attorney, get some great results. And he, you know, just went and just pre-trial spent a weekend with one of his clients. Just, I mean, at their house, learning about just looking at how they you know live their life day to day and how they interact and just spending that time. He just, just because he, he cared so much about representing them correctly and passionate about their claim. And that's, that story exemplifies the firm that we want to be and being great at what we do, taking care of our clients. Those are, we'd highlight what core values that reflects. And so you got to talk about them. You got to celebrate them. And then on the other side of that, you have to actively protect them. Where you may have someone that is an amazing attorney, an amazing legalist, amazing, you know, whatever, and they don't buy into your core values, they have to go. Like they got to get out of there because they can do so much damage to your culture. We always say if, if someone's not good at their job and they are against your culture, no one really listens to people that aren't good at what they do, they kind of blow them off. Now, if someone's really good at what they do, and they're getting great results, and they're also bad mouthing and bashing your culture, people will listen, people are like, maybe they know something, maybe they're onto something here. And they can do so much damage. And so you're actively asking yourself, would I enthusiastically rehire this person? And sometimes it's just purely because of culture. That's how we try to protect our culture. That's how we try to create our culture. And again, working with firms, that's how we go about it.
1: It seems like you're very passionate about what you do, everything that you do from... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it it comes across. And I think that that, like you said, you have to enjoy what you're doing. I mean, it's what we do every day, right? Like if you don't enjoy it, like what's the point?
0: I love what we do as as an industry. I think we help a lot of people that are in desperate need of help. Uh, I don't think we should ever lose sight of that. There's a lot of other firms that are doing the exact same thing in that spirit going, Hey, we want to take care of our clients, We want to take care of our team. We want to do great work. And I love talking to like minded people in our industry and helping each other be better. right? And yeah, it's, it's, you know, the other way you look at it, we're in a highly competitive industry and there's always a space in a marketplace for someone who's great at what they do, but we're not, we're not a zero-sum competitive firm. We believe that we can be successful and other firms can be successful and our success does not mean someone else's loss and vice versa.
1: Oh, I totally agree with that. What's next for you?
0: Right now, one of the things that we're, we're doing is that we've had law firms reach out to us. And this is really, really interesting is that I've had so many people reach out and go, hey, look, I want to sell my firm. I'm like, Well, there's not really much of a market for it. You can, you can try, but what are you selling and that kind of thing. And most recently we've given people an alternative to selling their firm. If you can hold off till there's public ownership of a lot of firms, which is coming down the pipe, I think that might be the best time to sell your firm. But between now and then there's a lot of guys that go, Hey, look, I want to quasi retire or, you know, I want to do less, but but still keep my firm going for the people that work with me. And what we've been doing is we've been actually managing firms for a percentage of the firm and entering in those type of relationships. And those have been very successful. We're, we will come in.
1: I'm sorry, wait, when you say we, are you talking about your law firm?
0: Deli de Bossier, me and my partners, uh, will use our team to go in and manage a firm uh, for a percentage of the growth. So if a firm is doing X and we take them to Y, we only participate from X to Y, not from zero to X, and so if we don't grow the firm, we don't get paid. And almost like the the model that all of us are very familiar with, a contingency fee model, but based on growth, we did our first deal like that probably about three or four years ago. It was very successful. Since then, there have been about four or five other firms that have asked us to do the same. We're in the process of getting those guys on board. And I see us doing more and more of those type of interactions because in that situation, the firm's... They have a local presence. They're keeping their brand. They're keeping their equity. And it's a way to really, for very little risk to them, get more discretionary free time, possibly uh, grow their firm and get a lot of good things without having to sell the firm completely and totally be out. And there's a lot of people where that's interested them. And so we've been bombarded with inquiries about that topic.
1: That's, I mean, I think that's amazing. And congrats. I mean, you're helping Law firms grow in a different way. What about if you have like a brand new lawyer, meaning like they want to start their own firm? Is this something you would do with them or you're only working with established firms?
0: Uh, Our preference is to work with established firms. I've not come across a a deal yet where there's a brand new attorney that says, hey, look, you know, I want to start from scratch. The established firms, they have a brand, they have an infrastructure, they have something to, to work with. And we can fine tune it and get them to a optimized space much quicker than starting from scratch going, all right, no brand. Let's get you out there start getting the phone to ring, etc. Okay. You know, no building, no phone system, no computer system, no, like scratch, scratch can be tough. And so what we've seen with these firms is they have attorneys, they have infrastructure, they have a lot of the setup and we're coming in and, optimizing what they're doing and seeing growth, seeing results, seeing improvement, it works for them. They're making more money. They're doing less. And for us, because we're in a unique position to do this, it's a win for us.
1: So you go in and you look at everything from intake to systems to culture, you help them with everything.
0: So typically what happens is I'll get a call and they'll say, Hey, look, I heard what you're doing. Um, Can we talk about it more? And then we start talking about it more we'll do an assessment of the firm where we'll basically look at hey what's the current state of the union for this particular firm okay they're doing this this looks good this could need some improvement and we'll very candidly go can we help this firm can do we think we could double them in 3 years or 2 years or do we think that we can get them to where they want to go this we'll have a conversation with the owner some owners are like hey look i want to have a at least 50% more discretionary free time. Other owners are like, look, I want to work in the firm still. I just don't want to, I want to try cases. I don't want to do marketing and management. And we'll have that conversation. It's a little bit unique to each owner. We'll figure out what that looks like. We'll set the parameters of, Hey, look, our, our intent is to add value. Your, your firm is making X up until this point. All right. we're, We're only going to participate if we get you past X and we only profit share if we get you past X. And there's a lot of guys like, Hey, that's cool. I get to, the firm maintains the name. I maintain my equity. There's an exit clause. If, if for whatever reason it doesn't work out on either end, there's a way for either party to get out. And it's worked out well. And more and more people are looking at it as an alternative to a full on sale. Because the numbers or the valuations that I've seen, at least within our industry, for a sale of a law firm, if your firm, you know, it's not great in, in terms of what is outside our industry, right?
1: Absolutely. What do you wish you had learned in law school?
0: I wish law school had been more practical. Like everything you do, you're in a room, you're, you're writing a brief, you're, um, yes, you can go do moot court or, or something like that, but I wish they had some type of apprentice. I guess you can do some people go get a law clerk position that's great. I think there should be a more formalized process for an apprenticeship or residency or whatever you want to call it, you know, where you go in. I think that part is so haphazard in law school, the practical application of the skills you're learning and you get out and you're kind of like, um, that that's one component. The other component of it is so much of what you do is managing your time, managing people, managing, even if you're, if you're an attorney at a firm, you have a a legal assistant, paralegal, or maybe many, and, there's zero time spent on, well, how, how do you be good at that so that life isn't miserable for you and for them because you're a bad manager, right? And, and I wish there had been some time spent on that in law school or, again, the practical, like, what are you actually going to run into when you get out there and prepare you better for that?
1: Thank you so much for taking the time. Tell me, how can people get a hold of you?
0: They can reach me at, at C Dudley at dudleydebosier.com. Best way to reach me, yeah, if I can be of any help, let me know.
1: No one can do it all. Identify what you love to do, what lights you up, and delegate the rest. Identify the macro from the micro. Make goals clear and objective. List the roles and responsibilities for ownership and accountability. Letting go may be hard, but it is the only way to grow. No matter what your vision, we both want your practice to grow, to get to that next level and become the best version of yourself in the process. Thank you so much to Chad Dudley for everything he shared today. And thank you for tuning in. If this conversation moved or inspired you, subscribe so you never miss an episode and please leave a five-star review. Catch us next week on Tip the Scales with me, Maria Monroy, president of LawRank. Hear how the best in the business broke out of limiting beliefs, overcame adversity and built a thriving purpose-driven business in the process.